0: hi there welcome yeah i'm josh this is dharma punks new york couple of announcements on july 10th a gathering in person come sunday afternoon the weekend after july 4th a couple of hours with other people interested in dharma punks join us uh it's the information's on the website, Dharma Punks NYC, and also you can find it at Center Yoga, which is on twenty third street. Talk meditation questions practices with Kathy uh somatic experiencing stuff. And September one to fifth is our retreat up in Garrison Institute. With the wonderful J Mo. She's a terrific teacher. Kathy, myself, and um, Garrison is one of the most beautiful locations over the Hudson River Valley. Lots of hiking trails and all that. Easy to get to, too. Just jump on the Metro North, and you're right there in an hour from New York. So, uh, as a Buddhist, teacher who practices entirely within the 2,500-year-old tradition, I um, don't charge for anything I do. I do everything entirely by donation. So, the uh, PayPal is on the website. Information about if you're interested in Patreon to support my work, or Venmo is NYC. So, thank you for listening to all that and tonight deep dive into the different parts sub personalities tendencies predilections and um, we'll be talking about buddhist and contemporary perspectives on self-integration and how to orchestrate the mind all oh, this sounds very good so i'm sure you're aware that for countless millennia the earth was experienced as flat and thought to be the center of the universe because well that's the way it appears of course over time over uh sustained observation, scientific empirical research, it was revealed that not only is the Earth not flat, but it's not the center of the universe. In fact, we're just one planet amongst many, floating around one sun amongst many. So despite what uh, what we could call appearances, the picture is a lot more complex. Likewise, for the vast bulk of the human endeavor thought has been conceived of as the epicenter of the human mind and it's easy to misperceive that thought governs our behaviors that thought even provides our identity western jurisprudence is based on the idea that we have free will that we make conscious choices and yet today the whole cartesian i think therefore i am which places thought at the epicenter of the uh, our mental landscape is in fact just as outdated and flawed and incorrect as the idea that the earth is flat ever since of course uh, early religions, which postulated a divide between uh, God and satanic or demonic forces, there's been this kind of reference to the fact that the human soul is split between warring impulses. In the turn of the 20th century, with the publication of Freud's interpretation of dreams. Freud proposed that the mind was, in fact, not dominated by conscious processes, but had an unconscious, or id, which held its own agendas, its own uh, desires that were very often incompatible with our conscious social behaviors. And, of course, he eventually complicated it with the superego, creating what he called the tripartite mind. And then in neuroscience in the 1960s, Paul McLean uh, popularized the triune brain, the idea of the brainstem, the uh, midbrain and the frontal cortex being different hubs or regions that evolved during different evolutionary periods and contain and drive completely different behavioral impulses and govern different um, states of being now today we know that uh, there are clearly different ego states that arise in different situations governed by different regions of the brain or different circuits of the brain in novel threatening situations bottom-up subcortical regions associated with safety first fight flight get me the hell out of here where am i going to get food shelter even impulses to protect our offspring are largely driven by forward projecting uh, midbrain regions uh, stemming from uh, areas including the amygdala the hypothalamus the striatum and so forth in safe situations top-down prefrontal impulses inhibit these bottom-up survival first fight flight find shelter find food impulses allowing us to sit together And to connect using words and facial expressions and friendly gestures allows us to develop trust and socializing experiences. It's the fact that our frontal, prefrontal cortex is so massive. Our frontal lobes are so massive in the human species that allows us to be predominantly a social species. But it's not just bottom up. There's also a different... Um, patterns of behavior uh, dedicated or at least governed by the left hemisphere versus the right hemisphere. The left separates the world it represents the world as ideas, words, thoughts, and is always Positioning us in time, whereas the right brain has no concept or very little concept of the future, is focused on, in fact, uh, always orients towards past emotional events, whereas the left brain is approach, the right hemisphere tends towards withdrawal and negative emotions. Um, And while they're both happening all the time, they both depending on who's dominant in the processing, which hemisphere is dominant can result in entirely different behavioral repertoires. And then on top of that, if we need to complex this or make the situation even more complex, um, even when we're very conscious and not too stressed, our conscious processes can be governed by three different networks that all have different tendencies and create different types of thought and different types of impulses. So the most common, perhaps, is default mode network, hence its name. And that's active when we're not actively focusing on the outside world, when we're, when we're not actually working on a task and when we're lost in speculation or thinking about ourselves or what might happen in the future. And this state, while it can be very vital in helping us foresee issues that we need to address, also is associated with a lot of stress. We're very often not too happy when we're in default mode operation. On the other hand, there's central executive processes, which are not medial like the default mode, but central executive are lateral. They are on the outside regions of the brain. And they manipulate um, and focus attention and help us problem solve. They help us be creative. They're very active when we are not engaged in speculation, but actually so much as solving a problem. We're not Worrying or or we're actively looking at things and engaged with a task and very often flow states can be uh, executed during uh, central executive or um, function. And then there's the salience network which is far more associated with lower regions, anterior cingulate insula that detect important changes in our environment and orient towards novel uh, sensations and stimuli. And it uh, always monitors our social status. It's a kind of Uh, awareness that also shifts, discerns any shift in our environment. So there's three different states of consciousness and alertness. Now, all of this goes to say that there is no central defining epicenter that could possibly provide a lasting sense of self or identity that is predictable are definable. And the Buddha certainly taught as much 2,500 years ago. And the most, one of the central teachings, and certainly the central teaching that distinguishes Buddhism from any other spiritual path, it's called the Anatta Lakana, where the Buddha explained that if you observe your inner experience for any period of time, what you will encounter are a variety of what he calls components or aggregates in the original is called khandas which are different internal experiences all of which are shifting mutating very fluid and never congeal predictably into a predictable identity or self or personality the buddha said we have body sensations feelings which are kind of like the uh, gut foundations of emotions, we have thoughts, we have states of consciousness. And we also have what he calls perceptions, which are very important. They're mental shortcuts that allow us to quickly interpret situations and instigate behaviors. And these Perceptions cause us to only see what confirms our pre existing beliefs and ideas. And a lot of tonight's talk is going to be focused on these perceptions and how they work in our human experience. So, for the Buddha, all of these different components can bind together and give the illusion of a personality, but they're only sub personalities or tendencies. They're not actually a fixed self. So sometimes we might be anxious, sometimes we might be relaxed and confident with certain friends, sometimes we might be in a caregiving mode where we're worried and we're compassionate with someone, sometimes we might be in a self-absorbed state where we don't have the awareness or the the resources to pay attention to what's going on with others because we're experiencing grief or suffering or disappointment. Sometimes we're filled with self-doubt. Other times we're confident. Sometimes we're frustrated. Other times where we have gratitude. So it's very clear that we are fluid. We do not ever con there's no way to define who Josh is. And if I try to narrowly focus or narrowly define myself or come up with an underlying ethos, that would only cause me frustration, as the Buddha said, because no matter how I try to define or come up with some thread that connects me from through all my life and defines me, it will never be definitive, it will always be just only present in some states, but not others. There's times in my life, where I've always where I've been not always where I've been. very very creative there's other times where i'm totally not creative there are situations where i'm compassionate there's situations where i can be self-absorbed it's there is not a definitive underlying thread to any human being but our predilections are the the states we fall into especially under stress can give the illusion that there's somehow a defining identity or self to us um, so what we would call internal conflicts involve an incompatibility between what we consciously want in life versus what our unconscious survival impulses dictate so for example you might have a situation where someone consciously wants to appear confident and effortless when they're speaking in public in front of others. But unconsciously, being the center of attention, they might associate being you know, the center of attention with ridicule or shame from their past. Maybe at some point in school they were uh, made fun of consistently when they were called on. So when they speak in public, they panic and they start to sweat, even though their conscious desires are to be confident. So there's an internal conflict. Another classic internal conflict is people can want to be in relationships to bond with another human being in a partnership, but also have so many uh, serve, uh, defensive behavioral patterns associated with protecting themselves from reabandonment and and any experience of uh, disappointment, that they might develop all of these impulses to attach to unavailable people, to not be interested in people who are available, to be overly demanding and set criteria that no human being would be able to, um, meet as a potential partner and so on and so forth. So our conscious, our conscious goals can be very incompatible with our unconscious defensive survival oriented, uh, bottom up impulses. Um, our most profound human impulse, I would argue, it's certainly uh, associate, most of our associated with some of our greatest traits and what sets us apart is all of the innate psychobiological uh, circuits and regions of our brain that motivate us to establish proximity to others and to get safety in numbers. We're a species that requires twelve, fifteen, eighteen years of of parenting to be able to adapt to the complexities of the human interpersonal arena. So we are um, a profoundly attachment based species. The human social landscape devours so many intricate, subtle abilities to discern when somebody's being sarcastic, ironic, when somebody's saying they're right when they're not right and so on and so forth that we required literally well over a, a decade, sometimes two decades to to begin to function. And so because of our need for uh, for all this um training. In infancy, any experience of disconnection, neglect, or shaming is devastating. In infancy, we're totally dependent on our caregivers for survival. And even when we're adolescents, emotional abandonments can be extremely devastating as it can be interpreted as there's something wrong or unlovable or broken in me. Uh, Children... And young adults tend to experience any emotional disconnection as something they've done wrong. It's also not only triggering shame, but it's excruciating. It can feel like annihilation. When we experience emotional neglect or ridicule or shame, the... HPA axis of the brain, the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal, sends messages that activate the secretion of cortisol and create extremely stressful states. And after these, what we call adverse childhood experiences, we will learn to develop strategies to help us survive during times when we're not being lovingly attended to by caregivers. will develop behavioral uh, repertoires that will help us regain positive attention because our attachment drives are so strong and our need for attention is so deeply woven into the very fabric of the brain, especially the anterior cingulate cortex, that when attention goes away, as we know from the work of Lieberman and all of the studies that they did, that there's devastating emotional pain that results. So to avoid that emotional pain, we might develop behaviors like fawning or placating people-pleasing. We might become, uh, practice emotional denial, I'm fine, everything's okay, or seeking attention versus exaggeration. These survival behaviors are redundantly wired because they're so linked with survival. They bond regions like the amygdala, the the fear of uh, Sort of survival hub with the basal ganglia, motor movements, the striatum impulses, cingulate attention and prefrontal cortex, even all these can be linked together. Uh, So when we're under stress or in a a difficult interpersonal experience, or when we don't know if we can trust others, we'll experience these predilections to people please, or to become self-reliant and just seek solitude, or we might become... Uh, self-critical or obsessively worry or become controlling or compulsively achieving or compulsively eating as a way to try to mitigate and to resolve or to survive the times where we don't feel emotionally attended to in childhood. Our brains prioritize all of these repertoires because they're associated with safety, and the brain really redundantly wires circuits that are associated with survival under threat. The brain has negativity bias, and it really always makes sure that the the behaviors that help to survive our childhood are deeply ingrained even though as in a in our adult life these very same behaviors of self-reliance extreme self-reliance perfectionism self-criticism obsessive worrying, controlling, compulsive eating, or people-pleasing at the extreme can now be the very things that drive others away from us or cause us suffering, they're still deeply wired and will be our first impulses when we are in difficult interpersonal situations. They're known as maladaptive coping strategies or in IFS therapies, they're known as managers. Um, So um, these are parts or sub routines that pop up whenever there's any underlying level of stress. Memories of abandonment, neglect, attachment traumas are so unbearable to process, they're quickly suppressed, which means pushed out of We try not to think about them. We repress them. And these exiled memories, um, now unconscious, can become triggers. What does that mean? The memories of abandonment or neglect or shaming or ridicule or disconnection, when any present experience even remotely reminds us of these emotional wounds, they'll instigate once again these survival behaviors. We'll once again wind up in our, uh, what we might call our survival parts, our managers that jump up and help prevent pain by, one, trying to make us look as good as we can to others, or two, at least mitigate the possibility that we'll be Will experience more rejection or neglect. So for some of us, this might be a taskmaster that wants to be seen as efficient and uh, keeps a stiff upper lip and works longer and harder. There might be a people pleaser or a caregiver that excessively tries to uh, take care of others or always express concerns about others at the expense of our own inner balance. There might be an inner extreme inner perfectionist inner critic that activates a sense of shame that we're whenever we make a mistake or there could be the professional worrier that always is preparing for bad outcomes. And sometimes this worrier masks as a planner, somebody who's really good at planning, but is really also doesn't trust other people to help them navigate or uh, address difficult situations. Now, when our managers fail, when these uh survive, socially in, these ingrained survival uh behaviors or maladaptive coping strategies don't work out uh what we might call our, these these manager parts don't work out there's a substratum or next level of parts that are not as attractive Um, they're associated with addiction and compulsion. And so for some of us, it might be the the depressed state that we go into where we numb ourselves with alcohol or downers or TV or, or just check out and sleep a lot. Or there might be uh, the person who becomes addicted to food or shopping or drugs or um, social media and so forth again, we don't like to be seen as much in these uh, compulsive states, and we generally rely on them uh, when our managers or when the the more socially acceptable Survival behaviors really start to to fail or are not not ag- adequate for the situation at hand. These parts take on the burden of protecting us from re-experiencing the pain of people. Uh, disconnecting, neglecting us, not feeling important to others. Um, And it can create a lot of polarization. Sometimes our parts, even our, you know, that look good to others can be incompatible. The inner critic can be um, really uncomfortable with the part that simply wants to sleep or disconnect. The inner critic might hate the the part of us that wants to self-soothe through food etc 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 the point is though that parts are not bad or broken they are all stemming from survival strategies that helped us to take care of ourselves during environmental failures in childhood And when they're used in balance with our pro-social parts, these capabilities, the need at times to self-soothe, relax a little, or to plan, or to at times be caregiving or pleasing to others, when used in balance, none of these are inherently uh, uh, terrible. The inner critic sometimes can help us uh, regulate or become accountable to others. The uh, the warrior can help us at times anticipate uh, situations that we need to address. The taskmaster can drive us, or inner critic can, or taskmaster I should say can drive us to create work that is. Uh, beyond what we would normally produce and so on and so forth. But when we over-rely, when we stay in these uh, stressed survival states, the protective parts become dominant at the expense of our pro-social parts, the parts that trust in others, that ask for help that are curious about an experience rather than immediately need to fix and solve everything. The parts of us that are creative or calm. The pro-social parts are not as neurally redundantly wired as the survival protective parts, so the prosocial parts can be easily overwhelmed under any situation that's new or unpredictable or when we experience any subtle shifts in our standing with others. So healing requires unfusing, separating what our observer is, the part that can observe and watch, with these underlying or these Parts, So we don't identify with our worrying. We don't identify with our self-critic. We don't identify even with the parts that are curious or calm or creative. We simply view all of these as states of being, but we don't confuse ourselves. We can get a detached awareness, an observing of these states, and we begin to know them their feelings, their thoughts, their behaviors. We begin to watch ourselves push away from others and become controlling or we watch ourselves become uh, uh, governed by self-criticism or self-doubt and we become aware that we're now over-reliant on this part and then we might need to stop and pause to take a breather and say, wait a second, I'm so caught up in this stressful momentum that I'm now overly self-reliant, I'm overly not asking for help, I'm overly being too uh, perfectionist, I'm not knowing when to let go. Sometimes we might need to titrate, which means move slower, to literally walk and talk slower, which the more we down-regulate the nervous system, the more we reduce the stress, the less of a hold our protective parts have, and the more our pro-social parts that can ask for help, that can uh, see the bigger picture, can be curious and see, wait, is this as much a disaster as my mind is telling me might kick in? So, a huge part of mindfulness practice, as the Buddha uh, taught, was developing this awareness, or sati, where we learn to observe and begin to get to know these subparts or these behavioral tendencies and not identify with them, not completely fuse with them and that's very much the role of our much of our meditation and spiritual practice is to is to one learn to observe ourselves and two learn to self calm so that the less we're, we are physically activated in a state of stress the slower we move the more we The deeper we breathe, the more we orient away from threats or to unresolved issues, to safety and resolved issues. The less these ingrained tendencies that can drive people away from us, the less of a hold they'll have. We're going to be doing now meditation meditation where we consider um, a prominent tendency. And we're going to be doing some of the strategies used often in uh, therapies associated with parts work, uh, where we're going to, uh, in our meditation, actually address these parts and express our gratitude, because they're not broken, But also, we're going to express how we now have other tools to take care of ourselves. And we're going to connect with the various different parts in a way that we can begin to orchestrate our minds more effectively so that when we're in stressful, overwhelming, unpredictable times, we won't rely on the first impulses that arrive, which are the oldest, the one stemming from childhood attachment dramas associated with just not trusting others, not uh, overly critical about ourselves and others, overly self-reliant, overly sure that we know what's going on without being curious, overly controlling, and so on and so forth. So, thanks for listening. I hope that that was um, uh, a worthwhile talk. And now I'd like to encourage you to find a really comfortable position. And if you can stay for the meditation, I'd really encourage it, because we'll really be uh, using the ideas in the practice, and it will help uh, really get a grasp on how to turn these ideas into real practices that bear uh, fruits for change. So closing the eyes. And first we're going to just downregulate our autonomic nervous system so that if we're still in any of these uh, survival protective parts, that we'll be able to get some distance and detach from them so that we can actually become calm and engage in those pro-social, healthy states of calm, relaxed, curious, creative... So let's start by just taking a nice full in-breath, long out-breath, full in-breath, raising your shoulders, full out-breath, dropping the shoulders and letting them hang comfortably. Full in-breath, imagining your belly or try to get your belly to expand with the in-breath and then full out-breath, release, soften the belly. So the belly is bloated with the in-breath and releases. With in-breath, feel the energy moving up the front of your body. With the exhalation, feel... All the contraction or tightness in the front of your body release. And just try to settle into your experience and really find and orient your attention to sensations in your body that feel really good, soothing. If you can find an area maybe in the palms of your hands or behind your eyes, or maybe somewhere Else in your body, see if you can begin to spread that ease to adjacent areas of the body, using the in-breath to bring attention to the, to orient towards the feelings of ease, and then With the exhalation, allow that ease to spread, to migrate if it can to, like you're uh, kneading water into dough, you're spreading the ease and comfort. If no, if you can't find any ease, Physical sensations associated with a pleasant physical state bring to mind a place or a person, an animal, a pet, someone or some something or some being that you love and trust. Some place that you associate with joy or safety and comfort. or just simply repeat, may I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering, and put a hand on your heart center to activate the vagal nerve. And in this practice, the goal is really to cultivate a focused state of ease, of comfort, If it's soothing to bring in sounds, that's fine. If it's soothing to open your eyes and really focus on something in your environment that's soothing, that's fine. Right now, what we want to do is just down-regulate our nervous systems back into a profound state of coming to a stop and landing in the present without any momentum. When a ball that's been rolling downhill finally comes to a complete stop, letting all the need to move, the need to act, And just make a mental note that any situation in life that's unresolved or seems important, that in 10 minutes from now, you can focus your attention entirely on those concerns. but just keep bringing attention back to anything that's soothing in your present experience and keep returning your attention again and again, no matter how many times your attention drifts away, that's okay. Much of the practice is just ingraining a new survival tendency, rather than to fix, solve, worry, a new, we're ingraining a new tendency to relax, stop, slow down, take a pause from the from life just long enough to reset our nervous systems, so that an entirely new set of behaviors will be. instigated. Remember that the mind that creates the problem can't fix the problem. To change the mind, we have to change the body. We have to relax, slow down, soften. So we'll just sit here quietly for a while and just practice So at this point we can move on to a practice. Hopefully we've gotten to a place where we're peaceful and experiencing some ease so we can be aware of what our bodies are like when we're not in any of these protective survival behaviors. We can feel what it's like to just move slowly, breathe in a relaxed way. We can note how there's not too many future worrying speculative thoughts firing in the mind. You can get a sense of how there's not as many strong gut feelings arising and passing. And just try to find that part of us that's aware of what this state is like And now what I invite you to do is to visualize a scenario or situation where you would be activated into one of your, what we could call, protective managers for instance, a situation where you become prone to becoming more controlling or you don't Uh, ask for help, you become more self-reliant or you become more perfectionist, where you worry that unless you keep working and worrying and that something will go wrong or maybe a situation interpersonally where you become fawning and placating and don't speak or express your needs. Find A situation where in the aftermath you don't often or always like or feel satisfied with the way we coped with the situation. Situations where we're maybe overly fixing and solving or critical about ourselves or just can't let go of something Sometimes people get into home improvement and they can't stop or uh, worrying about things that can go wrong and work or in relationships and just can't put it down So what's it like when we're in the worrying state? And then just ask if you can, well, before we ask, see if you can visualize or represent the part that we're working with, the worrier, the taskmaster, the self-critic, the self-reliant, the people-pleaser, the perfectionist. See if you can visualize maybe yourself, in this state, or maybe yourself as a child when these coping strategies first developed. So see if you can come up with a visual, or come up with a name when you're that is not harsh, but a name for you, yourself when you're in this state. You could call it the worrier, or the the perfectionist, or the planner, or the catastrophizer or the whatever, the fawner, and without any judgment, what we want to do is ask this part, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't do your job? Do you think I wouldn't come in and help, that the other parts of us wouldn't be able to meet our needs, Sometimes if we're really curious, we can feel an impulse, like, if I let go, if I trust in others or ask for help, they'll disappoint me, and it'll be just better if I took, handled everything myself. And then we might just note that, and really see how truly how much suffering and pain underlies that belief. We might assure it, we're grateful for all the times that it helped us survive in our childhood and at times in our adult life. But now it's better for us, even if it leads sometimes to disappointment to not fall into these patterns where we can't let go, where we can't take a break, where we can't trust others, where we can't relax. It's better to trust and at times, sometimes be disappointed than to always deeper, ingrain and wire these survival strategies that just push others away and just creates this underlying impression that we're not safe in the world. And then Think of a time when we're alone and engaged in one of those compulsive activities that we're embarrassed to admit, when we're binging on food or TV or excessively shopping or just walking around in a fog. And once again we just ask we might visualize ourselves or a time in our life that represents this and just ask what are you what do you think would happen if you didn't take control of my behaviors what would what do you think would happen if You let the adult part of us begin to step in at times, reach out, take risks, connect with others, be confident, explore new, different ways of soothing our loneliness or feelings of uh, rejection. Appreciating the fact that at times, even though now we think of these behaviors as addictions or or we might feel tempted to hate them, they were, after all, originally a way we survived some of the most devastating neglects and loneliness of our childhood. So we relate to all of these parts not as if they're broken, but just with the awareness that at times we over-rely on them. Lastly, in this practice, ask for permission from these parts we've connected the protective parts, the worrier, the perfectionist, the compulsive uh, addict, or whatever to connect with one of the painful memories that have been exiled into the deepest recesses of the mind the memories or the feelings associated with abandonment neglect ridicule or shame you might even come up with an image of yourself as a child or at some point in your life where you felt most alone and just If you can in any way feel or experience this, see if you can, yourself, as you are in your most calm, your most creative, your most unactivated state. If you could come up with a new way to soothe And reassure this part of ourself that's so frightened of rejection that we'll find new ways to manage situations rather than over-rely on these old parts. So, you can now let go of any visuals or uh, internal dialogue interaction and just at your own pace just allow yourself to become aware of your environment and Take a nice breath and relax. Again, I'm grateful for your practice.